Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 30th episode, I'll be talking to Colin Mulcairin, co-host of the Smash Fiction podcast and game designer, about Magic the Gathering and negative capability. Along the way, we'll discuss rejecting the rules and substituting your own, the type of awakenings one can have when watching an Austin Powers movie, and I get an honest-to-God Math of You exclusive that I'm really happy happened. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on the Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake <laughs> so my name is colin mulcarian i am one of the hosts of smash fiction it's, it's always a little bit tough to describe like it's a nerdy debate podcast basically the idea is that we take two or more fictional characters and we put them in some sort of hypothetical situation and we argue about who would win some sort of contest sometimes it's a fight sometimes it's something way weirder and more esoteric some of our episodes are like you know gandalf versus dumbledore we had an eating contest between kirby and no face from spirited away and homer simpson we've had jareth the goblin king versus dr frankenfurter in an attempt to seduce bella swan from twilight so oh my god there's been all <laughs> yeah so <laughs> i missed that one on the list yeah, all sorts of craziness. We also do a once-monthly special thing called Extraordinary League. It is an actual play RPG podcast. It's this ongoing crossover RPG where we play this group of different fictional characters that have assembled together, and they sort of keep peace in the multiverse and travel around to different planes and interact with different characters from fiction. And we ourselves are a team comprised of different fictional characters. So That's really cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As far as um, Beautiful and Unique Snowflake is concerned, however... So as you said, I like binge listen to all of your episodes and I was thinking like, how am I going to respond? Because everyone always gets caught off guard by that question and they don't know how to answer it. And I'm like, I'm not going to get caught off guard. I'm going to have some awesome answer to it. And I've been thinking about it like all day and I have, I have no idea why I'm a beautiful, unique snowflake. <laughs> and see, you, you've just apart the kimono for a moment. Yes. The reason I use that question is exactly that because right. it kind of cuts through the layers that people have prepared. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone has, okay, I'm going to say I do this thing. And it's like, no, just just tell me about you. <laughs> and it's like, oh. Right, right, right. And I, I tried to prepare. I tried to defeat the question. I'm like, I'm not going to let it get me. And I still got nothing. It still caught me off guard. I'm like, yeah, I still got nothing, man. I don't know. <laughs> you cannot escape. The gazebo has you now. I cannot. <laughs> do you do you yeah. try to make them as obscure as possible with the references? Because I just caught the, um, you are technically correct, the best kind of correct. And I don't know if your guest got that one, but I certainly did. And that made me quite it's, See, that one is one of those references where it's, it's become part of things that I say. Right. Where I don't even think about it anymore. Yeah. Because it's just, it's, it's up there with, yes, it's X to a given value of X. 
And like it's one of those things where every once in a while someone will like question it, right? And I'll go, "Oh, I, I said that, right? I have to explain." Yeah, see, that's a Terry Pratchett thing where they're talking about quantum magic mm. and how it's yes, but only to a certain degree of yes. So it is, but it kind of isn't too. It's like you know, close enough for. <laughs> I have actually not read any Discworld. My older brother okay. has, but I I'm not versed on that one. So that one has slipped past me. Your your, your <laughs> reference has slipped through my defenses. <laughs> Woo! Got one past the keeper. Yes. <laughs> I got that, of course, but I hate Quidditch for the record. It's the dumbest sport ever. <laughs> I'm really into, like, game design. That's, like, one of my hobbies. I've designed, like, role-playing games and some card games and stuff like that. And, like, Quidditch is the dumbest game. I just can't stand it. It makes no sense. Like, it, no one would play it if it existed. It'd be like, let's change these rules. They're awful. Like, I don't know. I was along with Quidditch up until the point where I was watching in the movies, and I talked about the bludgers and the fact that they are basically rocks that fly around with a will of their own, just like smashing people and breaking bones. Yeah. And I remember looking at that and going, okay, rugby is one thing. Yeah. <laughs> that thing would kill someone. Yeah. How many deaths in Quidditch do you have based upon, you know, a bludger breaking someone's face in and them falling, you know, 20 yards right. to the to the ground? Yeah, that, that's the other part of it, the fact that you are oftentimes at a height that if you fell from it just in a free fall, you would die when you hit the ground. So, like, <laughs> and they played at schools? Like, I don't know. <laughs> There was a very long episode of I Will Fight You where they talked about how the wizarding world makes no sense if you apply the barest amount of critical thought yeah, to it. Like, and they didn't even get to the Quidditch stuff. So, like, <laughs> it, it may come out in the interview, but, like, you know, I had I had a lot of eclectic tastes as a kid, and I actually started reading Harry Potter in, like, when I was, like, in fifth grade, and it, it, like, had not hit the Harry Potter craze yet. Like, one of my friends just said, oh, this is a cool book I read. So I did read Harry Potter before it was cool, but I did not like it before it was cool because I honestly thought it was kind of derivative, even, like, as a oh, little boy. kid. Like, I was kind of like yeah it's fine but like i mean they didn't make up wizards they didn't make up like centaurs or any of this stuff and they all have these silly british names that i can't get on board with i like warmed up to it later but like i really was not a big fan right out of the gate on harry potter like because i had been consuming so much nerd culture up until that point in my life that like it was nothing i hadn't seen before and it was like fairly well done but i don't know like i already i knew like x-men and you know i was like so that's the kind of school i want to go off to you know and i had read so many things with wizards and all this stuff i'm like yeah it's just wizards and goblins like i don't get it you know yeah i want a school run by a bald guy that blows up every five months <laughs> indeed <laughs> all right colin well you kind of hinted at it there but let's go into the next bit so what sort of kid were you? If I had to describe it in one word, I would probably go with soft <laughs> in a lot of ways. Okay. I was very sensitive. I was kind of sheltered, soft in also like a little overweight, fond of like hugs and snuggles and like stuffed animals. Like I was a very like little pushover kid, you know, I was like kind of superstitious and OCD as well. Like a lot of belief in the supernatural and fear of ghosts and things grabbing you from under the bed, that kind of thing, you know, just like a kind of a, a creative keep to myself, do a lot of drawing in sketchbooks and writing and stuff like that and also very attached to my older brother Dan it, he, who pretty much had like like the defining relationship of my childhood was with him as you I'm sure we will talk about even more as this goes on so there's an expression that I've learned in Australia that I've kind of adopted into my lexicon which is when you refer to someone as a hothouse flower what's that a hothouse flower is something that can grow in a greenhouse in an environment where certain things are correct but when you would take that flower and put it outside, it would have a really rough time. Right. I think that that's, that's, a, that's fair. I was a very emotionally fragile child. So if I'm, like, hanging out at home with my family and, like, you know, whatever, playing Super Nintendo and stuff, then, then we're good. But, like, when I meet a child who's, like, maybe a couple years older than me that has 
at least even like a drop of testosterone in their body, you know, and like I'm asked to do anything physical. It, it did not end well. I was, I was kind of, you know, like picked on a little bit and just, I could do very little right in terms of like being an outdoorsy kid or being a tough kid or anything like that. Yeah. You did say that you would draw quite a bit. So what sort of things were you drawing in your notebooks? It was kind of all over the place. I was a creative kid, but I actually was not that much of like a fanboy of properties that existed at a young age. It was much more of my own original stuff, even from a very young age, drawing like monsters and superheroes and stuff like that. Just different science fiction and fantasy crazy stuff. A lot of times thinly veiled ripoffs of pre-existing things or like take these two (laughs) ideas and mash them together and that kind of thing. But even from a young age, it was it was like always kind of my own stuff. Not that any of it was good, of course, you know, but... Whereabouts was this happening? Where did you grow up? So I was born in Connecticut, actually, in Hartford. And then at a young age, I moved to New Mexico. So I grew up in New Mexico up until the beginning of high school. I was in the town of Las Cruces. And then in high school, I moved to Tucson, Arizona, one state over. And that's where I live right now, even though I'm currently in California visiting family. So I moved one more state over, but I do live in Tucson right now. Las Cruces sounds like like a setting for a cool, like dark and gritty Western. <laughs> it's like we're never making it out of Las Cruces alive. It means the crosses. It's pretty cool in, you know, in Spanish. So it's slightly <laughs> ominous. And so instead the fantasy Western setting would have have like lots of crosses over every doorway and like people closing shutters and stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm off in this, this no, hey, Westworld idea. I had a really cool street name. I lived on Echo Canyon Road. That's pretty cool. Which is just pretty badass. Yeah. I always got boring street names, like just like, oh, Cameron Street or yeah. Victoria Street. Yeah, yeah. I heard some people, I remember when I was older, say that they thought that the third, I guess episode six of Star Wars was boring for them because, oh, it was just like in California or whatever, you know, like the Redwood Forest. How boring is it that it's in a forest? And I remember for me, that was way more exotic of a setting than Tatooine, which actually <laughs> resembled where I lived quite a bit. So I had a bit of like kinship with Luke Skywalker in that way. I'm like, yeah, we're both kids from the desert. So whatever. <laughs> You've reminded me, the reason Mad Max Fury Road took so long to come out is they were going to shoot it in the same place they shot it previously, Mm -hmm. which is in parts of Australia that are very desert-like. And so you can have just miles and miles and miles of nothing, just like rocks and sand and like scrub. Except for when they went to shoot it, there had been like nine months of rain Mm. and leading into like a big wet season. And so everything was green in that area. (laughs) And they're like, crap. Yeah. Um... Like, we're trying to find the green place. Well, it's there, and it's there, and it's there. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. They ended up moving to, like, Namibia or somewhere. Right. And it was just apparently a hellish shoot. And it's like, why couldn't we be in Australia? We could drive into town in Australia. <laughs> yeah. Amazing uh, <laughs> movie, by the way, of course. Goes without saying, but just so so mind Absolutely. I just, I just don't have words. The only reason I'm slightly bitter is a format question. Oh, yeah? When it came out on Blu-ray, I'm like, I know I want this. And I know I want the Road Warrior because I used to watch that with my dad when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I had rewatched the first Mad Max and I didn't like it. And so I'm like, I want the Road Warrior and I want Fury Road. And I went to my local JB Hi-Fi store and they had just Fury Road for $36 Mm -hmm. because it had just come out. And then they had a four pack, which had all four films for $34. Okay. And I went, well, that's a no brainer. I'm just going to buy the four pack. And so I bought the four-pack and brought it home and watched it and enjoyed it. Except for a few months later, what happened is they released the Black and Chrome edition. Yeah. Which is where George Miller went through and, like, rekeyed and redid everything for, like, super high-contrasty black and white. And I'm a film nerd, 
And I was just like, yes, I want that. I want it so bad. Except for that one's $39. Mm. And I'm like, but uh, I can't <laughs> justify it. Yeah, there was actually a showing of that uh, black and chrome edition at a, a little like art house theater in Tucson. I didn't get a chance to go oh, see cool. it, but they've done it a couple times. I think they might do it again. Like it's it seems to go pretty well. It's it's called the Loft, and is the name of the theater. And they just show like weird random movies from like all mm-hmm. periods of time, just kind of like all over the place. Like one weekend, it'll be like, oh yeah, we're playing like Back to the Future or The Big Lebowski, just cause like you know it's not like an anniversary <laughs> or something. But like whatever they do, like it sells out. People want to go see that. You know, it's fun. So yeah, there's a place like that called Golden Age Cinema here in Sydney, mm-hmm. and it's actually a bar that is built in the old Paramount building. And so they've turned the front, the sort of the front lobby into like a little cocktail bar where they'll do like snacks and fancy drinks. And they've turned what used to be the old executive screening room into a tiny little theater. There's may, yeah, there's maybe like 50 seats. It's sort of, sort of like only about five seats across and then 10 back. And you've got the screen in front of you. And yeah, they'll do that. They'll do theme stuff. And there was one point for my birthday a couple of years ago where my girlfriend took me to a fancy dinner. And I'm like, this is a great dinner. And she's like, well, we have to wrap up. I'm like, oh, why is it like a sign scene? She's like, no reason. Mm-hmm. And then we went out and she's like, turn left and then turn left again. And we were at the Golden Age, and they were playing Wayne's World. And I'm like, yes! Oh. I am set. This is an excellent birthday. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those movies that I only watched as an adult and only once. So I don't have too much affection for it, but I still do like it. You know, it's just kind of like, that was not yeah. one of my maths of me. Was it one of your maths of you? Definitely, because it, it probably earlier than it should have been. Mm-hmm. Because I watched it at an age that I'm sure I didn't get half the shit that was in that movie. Yeah. Not just the sex jokes. I'm also talking about all the various musical references and stuff that they made where it was just, it was going completely over my head. It was just, yeah, it, this was a funny movie. And it was one of the four VHSs that we got from McDonald's right. when they had a deal. So I watched it over and over and over again. So we actually, I had a similar experience rewatching something recently for an episode of Smash Fiction. We had to watch Austin Powers. And oh boy. When I was in, watching the first Austin Powers and there's like the hot tub scene with a lot of vagina mm. i realized i think i was like i think this was my like sexual awakening as like a middle schooler because like it had like weird th- i was like wait a second yeah this is feels important <laughs> like because <laughs> i was about that right age you know that was like starting to enter puberty and then yeah i think i think that was what did it that was the first one <laughs> yeah it's like when re-watching it you feel like hang on in, in sort of the lexicon of my brain, right. this section is underlined, and I'm trying to parse why. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. That, that movie was, was very, like, uh, not a good movie. Well, depending on your criteria, but that, that movie. Whereas I, I remember explaining to a friend of mine, we were talking about, about stuff, and he's like, oh, what was the fir- who was the first person in a movie you ever had a crush on? And I thought back, and I went, Winona Ryder in Beetlejuice. Yeah. <laughs> and he looked at it, and he, he's like, okay, she was a goth kid who wore a veil and took Polaroids of things. Lucas, you have a type. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, no, shut up. What? I, I think mine might have been very similar. Mine might have been Wednesday Adams. <laughs> so nice. basically the same thing, you know, so. <laughs> I, could, I could see a direct correlation. There. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so you talked a little bit about making up your own things, and one of the topics that you wanted to raise when I started talking about the show with you was mm-hmm. you want to talk about Apparently you made your own tabletop RPG game? Yeah, so that makes it sound way 
better than it was. I started playing RPGs when I was in fourth grade with my older brother. He started, he was like in middle school, you know, a few years older than me. One of his friends introduced him to it and then we started doing it. It was like the loosest of rules. Like most of it was just what they call GM fiat where like you just kind of make up what happens. Like the equivalent of rolling dice is you just decide, the GM just decides one way or the other. But it was also, mm. we had played a few RPG video games at that point. Like we played Super Mario RPG, which when we first played it, we didn't know what RPG stood for. The joke that we came up with was that it stands for really pretty graphics because we thought it had a really nice <laughs> graphics at the time. And then we played the Final Fantasy games, Final Fantasy VI or Final Fantasy III as we called it at that time because that was its American release title at first. And so we knew that like these RPG things existed and, you know, they have numbers. There's like, we were familiar with the concept of like HP and stuff. So we made these like tabletop RPGs where like you had stats but they were just then used to kind of inform the GM's decisions and you never actually rolled dice because we didn't own any of like the multi-sided polyhedral dice and we couldn't quite yet conceive of a system that complex but you would just like attack and like okay you deal this much damage to him and we just like write it down but like it was very weird and loose and kind of like halfway towards being a real RPG and like right on the line between that and just like playing pretend, you know, it was, so it was in this kind of like weird gray zone and we occupied that for like quite a few years. We did this game. The name we came up with it was, we called it quest was the name of the game where you'd say that you were questing. So it was this kind of like nebulous pseudo RPG until we discovered actual RPGs later on. I was still kind of bitter cause I was like, I don't want to learn all these rules. I can just make stuff up. And like Dan got more into like the, the crunchiness of the rules and like he, like playing like riffs and you know D and stuff and then i kind of followed a couple years later like i think the first system that i learned how to run well enough to just run by the book was savage worlds which didn't come out until a few years later because up until then i was just kind of making shit up so i don't know savage worlds which one's that oh it's a it's one of my favorite rpgs of all time it's sort of inspired by like pulp action and like action movies and stuff like that. One of the fun things, it uses all the different polyhedral dice. Your stat maps to a die type. So like you'll have a D4 in something or a D6 or a D8 or a D12 or a D10 or whatever. And so it's fun because when you're better at something, you pick up a die with more sides on it. So there's something very satisfying about that as opposed to just like, oh, you have a plus four instead of a plus three. Like you pick up the big die when you're good at something. And also there's no hit points. Basically all of the little like mook characters if you deal enough damage to them equal to their toughness value, they get incapacitated. If it's not equal to that, then they just remain up. So it's like basically mm -hmm. like all of the mooks, like you punch him, either he's fine. Oh, you have to punch him again. Okay, now he's out. But there's like, you don't keep track of hit points for anybody. It's very fast and kind of crazy. Like all of the dice, when, if they land on the highest die side, you pick them up and you roll again. The It's like the dice explode. And so all of the die rolls are open-ended and could be infinitely high in theory. So it's just like a very explosive, unpredictable game. And it's it's wacky and leads to a lot of fun stories and that kind of thing. And it's still like my brain thinks in Savage Worlds. It's like at the very core of when I think about RPGs, like whenever I start designing something, I kind of begin in Savage Worlds and then I have to deviate from there. So that's really cool. I mean, one of the aspects that I really like about tabletop RPGs or about RPGs in general is the openness of the environment so that if you can come up with something and you if you can hit that role you can do just about anything right and this idea of you know the, the exploding dice like you said where it's like if you do something really well and you get like four rolls out of it it's like you can pull off some crazy shit yeah yeah many fights in that end with okay you're, you're fighting the main boss and he kills you in one hit or you kill him in one hit like that happens <laughs> a lot more in that game than in most other rpgs just because of the nature of the system but it just leads to it being really like you know fun and unpredictable and stuff so so i i do like it a lot it's it's still one of my faves yeah i'm gonna steal a line off the adventure zone which i have been mainlining for the past two weeks i'm mm -hmm. now about halfway through 
from the beginning, uh, you cut him in half in the most fatal way possible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I actually remember a piece of narration that Dan gave that just stuck in my brain as well. When, like, you know, you roll so much damage that it's like, you know, ten times what it would take to kill them. It's like, okay, uh, he's reduced to a fine red mist, was the phrase that Dan used that I liked a lot. So He has murdered a comical amount. He's murdered so much you think it would be a joke. Right, yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yep. So stepping off that from, like, talking about rules and open-endedness, I'm going to raise a topic with which I'm not as familiar as I might be with some of the other things that we've talked about. I've had a lot of friends who've gotten into this topic, and I've, just like the kid who doesn't smoke but hangs around with the smokers, I've gotten secondhand Magic the Gathering. Yes. So, Colin, tell me about this Magic the Gathering. Ah, uh, Magic the Gathering. Where to begin? I actually got a, like just a random booster pack of Magic the Gathering when I was very young, and just this, it was uh, from the set Weatherlight, and just like this random collection of cards, I had to base my entire knowledge off of Magic Gathering, off of these cards and their flavor text and the images on them and the names of them, and not knowing anything else about the world, that like shaped my feelings on what magic was, and I of course assumed that all of these cards were the main characters, and like the most important cards, you know, and that kind of thing, when in truth it's just like a bunch of random cards from one random set. The kind of weird thing about a trading card game is, it's not like a movie where you started at the same place for everyone and everyone enters in in the same way you see it in random pieces like seeing random scenes out of order so it's a very strange experience and it also is something that i really like because it sort of invites collaboration in a way there is a pretty good magic story like a canon story that exists for what all of this stuff means and as i got older i learned all of that but there's there's this sort of like the naivete of finding this thing and not understanding all the pieces and then having to kind of put it together, it kind of gave me a taste for like open-ended narratives. If you're familiar with the game Shadow of the Colossus, it has that sort of similar feel where a lot of it's like open to interpretation and you don't quite know what's going on. I believe the term is negative capability. I've heard like Neil Gaiman write about it, about something which is intentionally not completed so to allow the reader to like fill it in. Hmm, I like that. The thing I like about Magic, it's like this, it can kind of be whatever you want it to be. It's a very open-ended game. And you just kind of get all these pieces and then you build your own game out of it, out of the kind of game you want to play. It's like, if I want the game to be a faster game, I build a faster deck. If I want to be a slower game, I build a slower deck. If you like the dark, scary stuff, you put the dark, scary monsters in your deck. If you like like light stuff, you put the happy, lighter monsters in your deck. And it just kind of creates this customizable to a degree that... A lot of games weren't at the time when I was playing that. I'm a big fan of, you know, things with like character creation and all that kind of stuff. That sort of stuff was not present at that time. So it was just like, that was why I really gravitated towards magic. You can kind of make it your own, you know? Yeah. What you were saying there reminded me a little bit of, I was trying to explain to someone why the Bioshock series is a good series. Mm-hmm. And not, not just in design, not just in story, but in actually in gameplay. What I came down to was, depend like they give you a dozen different powers for each like aspect for it's like okay this is how many different kinds of guns you can have this is how many different kinds of spells you can have this is how many like passive buffs you can have this is how many active powers that you can activate on a button press like all of these different things and you can from all those different things you assemble kind of you draw your diagonal line through those six horizontal lines right and you pick out your set to design your play type within that so by the time i got to the end of bioshock I had like a passive camouflage, I had an arm that would throw bees at people to confuse them, I had hacking darts, I had... The, the, I'm sorry, the word bees is always funny to me, I don't know why, but like... More bees, yeah, it's more just... bees. 
<laughs> Continue. Sorry. I just, when people say bees, That's I just fine. laugh. Yeah, it's yeah. just like, yeah. And I would, you know, intentionally set off cameras and then hide. And when the bots came, I would hack those right, bots right, and yeah. use them as little buddies. And like all these things. And it never got boring. It never got rote. Yeah. Because I could always add one thing or subtract something and look how that particular thing would buff the skills that I had. At which point then the world is your oyster to go ahead and, and play in the way that you want. That's basically where I come down on it. Mark Rosewater, who's the lead designer of Magic the Gathering, writes a lot about game design. And they have these things called player psychographics, where they talk about why players are drawn to games. And in terms of Magic, and it kind of applies to other games as well, but specifically Magic, there's the three main player psychographics, which they call Timmy or Tammy is the first one, and then Johnny or Jenny, and then the last one is Spike. So the first one, <laughs> they, they used to all be just single, like gendered, all just male gendered, and then they added Tammy to Timmy, and they added Jenny to Johnny as well. And then, but Spike, they're like, ah, I can just be Spike. Spike's like gender neutral, so whatever. <laughs> um, girls can be Spikes. So a Timmy or a Tammy plays to experience the game and just enjoys the experience of playing and just sort of like that kind of in the moment thing. A Johnny plays to express something. So it's sort of like a form of artistic expression like in how you so like how you build your deck is very important and how you play the game says things about you and so it's sort of like a form of art and you can do that in like you know some people who play like mmos or playing bioshock it's like i want to customize to make this statement about i'm picking my powers based on this is what i like you know this is who i am and the last one is the spike and spike plays for like optimal efficiency it's a player who plays to prove something to prove that they can pull something off and so that's sort of about like you know challenge and that kind of thing and usually searching for like the optimal path the kind of power gamer type you know so that's really cool I, I like that i'm now thinking back to being at a friend's house and him like turning on the first dead rising game and me just running around seeing what i could do like all the different you know weapons you can use and things you can combine and i kind of laughing at it so there you know being the the timmy thing just experiencing it right and one of his flatmates walking in going, what are you doing? You need to go over to this place right, and right. get all the cappuccinos that you want because that'll boost your health because then you're going to fight the boss and you want to have those things. And I'm just like, that, that's not fun for me. Right, I don't right. want to do that. Like you say, hey, man, I'm not a spike. That's not why I play this game. You know, so. Exactly. Yeah. So now, now you so have really the, cool. uh, the lingo to talk about that. Would you like me to show you my favorite Magic the Gathering card? That sounds like the either the best or the worst pickup line, but I'm into it. <laughs> well how's it working out no. <laughs> you're in so far you're in with a chance all right cool let's see your card just do a google image search if you want for phage the untouchable oh it auto-completed clearly this has worked on other people <laughs> all right so for listeners who have not gone and googled this thing i am now looking at what appears to be a medieval harley quinn mm-hmm. i'm seeing a very pale lady with those hardy boys like arm sleeve things on and a sort of a, per, a green corset with like gold pauldrons coming off of it and she's got red hair in these two pigtails and a long flowing purple skirt and those big shin guard grieve things that you see in Soul Calibur a lot. Yeah. Read the rules text for Phage the Untouchable for the actual card. When Phage the Untouchable comes into play, if you didn't play it from your hand, you lose the game. Whenever Phage deals combat damage to a creature, destroy that creature. It can't be regenerated. Whenever Phage deals combat damage to a player, that player loses the game. Okay. Are you serious? 
<laughs> so here's what I love about this card. It just like tells a story all by itself. Like if you just find this piece, it's really intriguing. You're like, what the hell is this thing? It's this cool like lady. She looks like a zombie or something. She's got this like weird, like like you described it, soul caliber armor. And what it says, okay, so when it comes into play, if you didn't play it from your hand, you lose the game. Now the usual way you play things in magic is you play it from your hand. But there are other ways to cheat things into play. And when you do that, it usually circumvents the mana cost, which is the like the resources that you have to expend to get it into play. So it basically um, it's a powerful card and it has this built-in clause to prevent you from cheating it into play. So if you try to cheat it into play, you lose the game because you have to pay for it. Um, when it deals combat damage to a creature, automatically kills the creature. And if it deals combat damage to a player, that means if you try, if you attack them and they don't block it with anything, they don't have any creatures to protect themselves with, if it hits a player, the player automatically loses. What do all of those three powers tell you? That Phage is untouchable. <laughs> if you try to summon Phage <laughs> in a cheaty way, it's like, oh, you touched Phage and you died. You know, if Phage touches a creature, that creature dies. If Phage touches the other player, that player loses the game. So, like, all three of those powers say the same thing. And I've actually, like, read about what Phage's storyline is, but I liked Phage way more before I knew anything about what her story is. When you just see this, like, artifact, and you're like, this is this cool, like piece of a story and i don't know who this character is but they seem really cool and like you're just kind of your mind is free to like make up whatever you want about this this thing you know as like this like artifact of this like lost story that you're not getting to see this god killer character right yeah because the way i read it and as you're saying that it's like the way i read it is oh phage doesn't just kill your creatures yeah phage kills you right exactly as in you the player so it's this, I'm reaching through the screen and I'm ending the game kind of thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, when, when you read that, it's like, it's this really powerful thing. It, the card actually plays very well in the game. It's a very fun card. If you do get it in, out into play, it freaks your opponent out. They're like, don't let it, don't get it away. You know, like, so, <laughs> oh, Jesus. And, and it does this, it has this really strong emotional reaction out of them. I read a blog about game design. I don't remember exactly where it was, but they talked about the difference between a primary emotion and a secondary emotion is what they dubbed it. A secondary emotion or like a shadow emotion. The idea is like, usually when you when you have like a work of art that's going on, you're experiencing like secondary emotions, shadow emotions, because you're not like really upset, like, you know, your best friend didn't just die, you know, in this thing, but you're like experiencing like a little bit of that feeling because you're seeing this, it happened to this fictional character. But every once in a while, there's a work of art that can cause you to experience a primary emotion. The example that they gave is if you load up your save file on a video game and it's corrupted and you've lost your save file, you're going to experience a primary emotion, <laughs> you know? So like, Oh hell yeah. Yeah. It happens every once in a while in gameplay. And that's one of those things. Like you play that card and you show it to the other people at the table and they're just like, what? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't want to lose the game. Like get away. You know? Like, so it's one of those things that just like speaks really powerfully plays well. And just, it, it, it was like a, a big, like light turning on, game design moment for me of oh you can design this really powerful thing that like has this emotional weight to it even just seeing this little piece of it and intrigues you want to learn more about the story of this character all that kind of stuff you know so anyway what was that expression you used was it negative capability yeah negative capability yeah it's that it's purposefully incomplete basically yeah yeah it's something that because i've been thinking a lot about astro city lately mm -hmm. and especially the early astro city books because they are set in a superhero universe i have not read astro city for the record so you may but but continue yes so astro city is by kurt Busiek, and it's sort of this alternate superhero world in which it is reminiscent of things like marvel and dc but also very much different in that you are never except for in very short stories 
set in one of the main characters. Like you're you're never Superman when you're reading this book. Mm-hmm. You will occasionally get to you know spend a couple of hours with Samaritan, who is the equivalent of Superman or Supreme or you know Hyperion or whatever other superhero character you want to refer to. But mostly your sort of lower level characters, your you know flat scan normals, like just humans in this yeah. world, or you're a, you know a police character, or you're a low level kind of former thug who has to like solve a mystery mm-hmm. or something. And what you get by being the, these lower tiered characters is you get a walking tour of this world. And you'll get like a hero swing by, have a couple of sentences and keep going. And you don't know anything about that character. Right. If So if it was like a, a TV show or like a comic book about that like superhero, there was like one panel of overlap in the two comic books, right? Like this panel yeah. with this like random thug in the background would appear in both comics, but then they go in vastly different directions before and after, right? Yeah. It's the kind of thing that is also done in the Sin City books, but a little less effectively. Mm-hmm because I don't like them as much. But, no, and also Astro City, because Kurt Music loves Golden Age stuff, has a lot of hope to it, but also a lot of reality in that they're grounded in the now, but there clearly was a Golden Age in this world where everything was fantastic, and now things are a little bit dingy. Mm-hmm. And you get stuff like Samaritan, who is the, the Superman analog, and he looks a bit like Captain Marvel, where he's got a cape over one shoulder, and he's all in red and white, and he's very kind of clean-cut and good-looking. The thing is that in his dreams, he flies. And he can fly in real life, but he's always flying, rushing to help someone. Mm -hmm. And so because he has super hearing, he can never ignore what's happening around him. He can never just like chill for a second. He's constantly working. Mm -hmm. But in his dreams, he can fly just for the fun of it. Mm -hmm. And so what he does throughout the day is he counts the seconds he gets to fly on the way to helping someone. Oh, that's really cool. That's the very first story this right, book tells. that's awesome. I need to read that. That sounds great. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. It's highly recommended. There's uh, The first one's just called Tales of the Big City, and it's just like short stories like that. Uh-huh. It's Yeah, it's very, very good. That, that idea of you see this tiny piece of something, and while, while you might get a bigger story about it later, or someone will refer to, oh, you know, we don't go over into that section of the city because that bad stuff happened with the, with the confessor, yeah. and no one goes over there anymore. And then maybe four or five books later, you might get to meet the confessor right or you might get to hear a little bit about what happened or whatever happened with zuko's mom oh i know i know about that because i read the avatar the last airbender comics which are the shit no i know i've read that comic too actually <laughs> they're really good yeah especially that that first one the, the promise and the search are both yeah real good i haven't read any of the other ones but yeah they're both great. On my first Valentine's Day with my girlfriend, we gave each other numbers one and two without actually organizing it. Really? That's amazing. <laughs> I gave her the second one thinking it was the first, and she gave me the first one. Wow. And like, that's like reverse gift of the Magi right there. That's like... <laughs> yeah, except for no one ended up with a haircut. Exactly. <laughs> and I still had a watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's amazing. No, it was good. So in a couple of episodes ago, I was talking to Aubrey Doubleclick, Mm -hmm. and she cited Steven Universe as one of those things where the music really impresses her. Yeah. And I mentioned at the time that my friend Brenton walked up to me and kind of gently shook me and told me that I had to watch Steven Universe. Yes. Since then, Steven Universe has kind of exploded, and everyone is talking about it. Uh, Comics Alliance does recaps. A former guest of the show, Al Collins, recaps it. And you had Steven Universe down on your list. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you, I'm going to get comfy. Okay. I want you to tell me about what Steven Universe means to you. Okay. Um, have you seen it? 
Here's the thing. Mm. I haven't yet. Ah, yeah. All right. You're one of them. <laughs> I'm one of them. I'm someone with too many things to watch, but I do. Yeah. I actually started to record it. Like I set it up on my DVR along with like Justice League and Bob's Burgers and a few other things. And then I realized that they were showing a marathon. Mm-hmm. And I ended up with like 40 episodes. I'm like, okay, this is late stuff. There's no way I can sit down and watch right. this without having watched in the beginning. Yeah. So Okay. Well, talking about negative capability, that was actually one of the first things that hooked me about Steven Universe. So the first episode is not really an origin story episode. It kind of starts off in the middle a little bit. The basic premise of it is there's a guy named Steven, or a, a boy named Steven. He is part of a superhero team called the Crystal Gems, the other Crystal Gems being Garnet, Amethyst, and Pearl. His mother used to be a part of this team. Her name is Rose Quartz, but she is no more. And uh, Steven apparently like inherited her powers. And so he's now kind of replaced her on the team. He's kind of like the little brother to them and just like an awkward little kid who's kind of a ball of love and wants to do the best he can, but is not a very good superhero, at least at the beginning of the series. It starts off, you're like 10 episodes in and you still don't know like, okay, what are these people and what are the things that they're fighting and how do their powers work? And like, what's what's going on? Like, and like some of the terms that they've used, they haven't even fully like defined yet it kind of just starts off in the middle and you get like one little drop of exposition in each episode but the characters are so solid that you just don't care you know it's like it just works so well in every other way and it eventually does answer every question you would want it to or at least i assume it will because it's still like a few seasons in and some of the basic questions it hasn't and i assume it will get there but even if it doesn't it's still great because you know negative capability and all that. But yeah, it's a really, really powerful show. I actually learned about it through Sailor Business, which we've talked about a little bit, because Chris Sims gave us gave a similar recommendation to Jordan, who's like, yeah, yeah, whatever, I'll watch it. And he's like, no, you need to watch it. So <laughs> watching this show, talking about like, you know, the math of you, what are the things that add up to you? And when we were originally talking, I sent you an enormous list of all the things I want to talk about. And one of the reasons is because like, I just go through a lot of like kind of phases in my life where I end up sort of redefining myself and kind of going through different transitions and oh I th- I think I'm, I'm I like this kind of stuff I think I you know like up until I started to get into that kind of lighter stuff kind of more optimistic stuff when I was like a teenager I was really into the dark you know like Watchmen kind of this no this is important this is dark this is real you know that kind of thing <laughs> yes I I, I can relate. Yes, I think we all had that time. <laughs> it's the sort of thing, though, like over the past year or two, I've started to, I've mentioned this to you a little bit in my email as well. Like I've started to explore my gender identity. I'm not entirely sure where I'm going to come down on this. This is actually the first time this has been recorded on a podcast. You're getting a scoop. I get an exclusive. An exclusive, yeah. So I'm probably not cisgender. I don't know exactly where I'm going to fall in terms of the different gender identities. Right now I'm saying gender fluid. I might be transgender. I'm not entirely certain. And like discovering this kind of unapologetically girly show in in a way that Steven Universe is that's still also really badass in the way that Sailor Moon is as well is really, really powerful. If you had to map all of the characters in Steven Universe to the classical like five man band archetypes from TV tropes, are you familiar with those? Oh, I am. Okay. The one who maps to the girl is Steven because he's like, <laughs> he's the heart of the party. He's like the one who they need to like protect, who is just like a ball of love. Like the show also, as it goes on, has incredibly good like queer representation there's like you know gay characters there's stuff with like gender fluidity and is an element in the show in some parts with it's it's a bit hard to explain without getting into a spoiler but there's like some kind of shape-shifting stuff that happens in the show and 
This the fusion dance, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a part of it where there's like a, a male character and a female character that fuse together and become like, yeah. So anyway, I had seen before that some stuff up which like has representation for like gay characters and and you know trans characters and stuff but a lot of times that was like the spotlight was so focused on it and it was like you need to understand this is important this is dark and this is heavy it's about this character struggling with their sexuality and everyone's trying to like stop them from being this way but they have to be this way like like moonlight the movie that came out which is very good but it's very heavy the thing that i really like about steven universe is it it has a lot of queer representation in it but it's a very light show it's not like oh this is something they have to struggle with and it's not like this is unimportant this is this is the focus of it they're characters who happen to be queer but it's not about their queerness they're just like superheroes who happen to be not cisgender and not heterosexual and stuff like that so it was very powerful for me in in that reason as well that's really great and just the idea that it's something that i've seen talked about by a lot of very intelligent people who articulated it far better than i could who are saying that you need all kinds of stories right and not every story has to be every particular kind of story you can have one type and another type and another type and they don't always have to be tragedy for all of there is tragedy it does not have to be the be all and end all of that type of story and it's it's that sort of thing where like you can't tell a story about a trans character on accident in our culture it seems like oh and uh, yeah we made the story oh yeah the main character is like trans or whatever like so the only people who like usually want to tell those kinds of stories, want to tell the story simply because it's about a trans person, and then so then it becomes like very much the focus of it, and it becomes this very much like this load-bearing pillar to the story, and it's like completely what the story's about. And so like it's the sort of thing where it's not a part of our storytelling language to the point where it can just be an element in a story and not have the light shined on it all the time. But the thing I like about the show is it's acting as though this is a world in which this sort of thing happens in stories all the time and it's not a big deal and it's not actually what the story is even about. That's really good. It just feels like it's from the future. You know what I mean? It feels like it's a show from like (laughs) 50 years from now after we figured all this stuff out and nobody has to worry about this anymore and you can just have gay characters in a show that's not about gayness or whatever, you know. All right. Well, you may have sold me. (laughs) I may, like, thing is I'm in the middle of a very rainy weekend and I had an interview earlier that has led me to want to go and watch a whole bunch of Miyazaki movies. Yeah. And so that might be today, and tomorrow might have to be Steven Universe. Okay. I hope that ends up being the case. So So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go? So if you'd like to find me, a good place to go would be Smash Fiction. It's a podcast that I do with a lot of good friends of mine. I mentioned at the beginning, but it's formalized debates about who would win in fights or contests between different fictional characters. It's mainly an excuse for us to make a bunch of dumb jokes and get really mad about each other about things that don't matter. It's all good fun. We're all friends. We all go home happy at the end of the night. Go check that out. I am somewhat of a podcaster emeritus now in that I have sort of retired a little bit from Smash Fiction. I'm not like a regular host anymore. I just, I guest host like probably about once a month. Um, I'm working on some other projects, some other game design stuff. And when that is finished, I will be deploying more things onto the internet for all of you to consume but until then just go check out smash fiction also when you initially sent the email i went to look and you don't seem to have a twitter presence which makes you (laughs) kind of unique among my guests i actually just gave out my first tweet like two days ago or something because i there's like a few people who are smash fiction fans who've been tweeting at me because i have like just at colin will and i'm just like an egg i just wanted to save it just in case you know 
Um, but a few people were like tweeting at me, so I eventually, so I'm like, all right, fine. So if you want to tweet at me at Colin Mulcairin, C O L I N. M-U-L-K-E-R-I-N, but I have just recently been dragged into Twitter, like, kicking and screaming, so. Oh, also, if you want to hear another cool thing that I did, I was a guest on the Gameable podcast, which is a role-playing game podcast where the the premise is they watch a thing, and then they talk about how you would adapt that thing into a role-playing game. I was on for an episode about Digimon. So it's a two-part episode. If you want to listen to me talk for like two and a half hours about how you would make a Digimon RPG, then go listen to that episode, because it's pretty great. (laughs) Wait a minute, wasn't there already a Digimon RPG? Um, like a, a game? A, a pen and paper RPG? No, I meant a video game. Yeah, though there were video games. This is all, it's like tabletop <laughs> RPGs. So yeah, this gotcha, is talking about gotcha. how, how you make a, a Digimon tabletop RPG. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And you've mentioned Digimon, and I swear I could have an entire episode where you and me and any Creighton just sit <laughs> and just break down Digimon. Because I've heard that they're digital monsters, yes. and Digimon are the champions. <laughs> well, you got the basics down. <laughs> All right, Colin. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Oh, yeah. Anytime. to Colin Mulcairn for his time. When I asked Colin for cocktail preferences for this show, he sent me a paragraph, which fits the rest of his preparation for the episode. He says, As far as my cocktail preferences go, my favorite alcoholic drink is probably a margarita, but I'm also into fruity things like sex on the beach or a blue Hawaiian. I'd like something colorful, a drink you can spot from across a dark room like a glowing neon exit sign. Green and pink and purple are my favorite colors. Something that goes well with little salt on the rim is a plus. No cherries, no olives, no mint. If you can just satisfy a couple of these requirements, we're good. I'm not necessarily expecting you to thread the proverbial needle through all these potentially contradictory demands. Well, damn it, Cullen, I'll bite. I ended up making a brightly colored combination of a sex on the beach, a margarita, and something that was called a pangalactic gargoblaster when I went to a bar called Zephob Bebelbrox in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, in the year 2000. And so I present the crystal gem. Run a lime wedge along the edge of a glass and dunk it in some kosher salt. Then in a shaker full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of tequila, three quarters of an ounce of fresh squeezed lime juice, a quarter of an ounce of peach schnapps, and a third of an ounce of simple syrup. Shake vigorously until the outside of the vessel frosts over and strain into your pre-prepared cocktail glass. Take half an ounce of blue curacao, and using a straw or an eyedropper, slowly drip it drop by drop into the middle of the glass so it sinks to the bottom. Garnish with a lime wedge. When a crystal gem enters the barroom, if you didn't order it, you lose the game. When the crystal gem is drank by a player, that player wins the game. Enjoy!
into your head. The Matthew View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, or Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Lokified and chip in as little as a dollar a month. You can get early access to episodes, physical mail, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head on over to iTunes of the country of your choice and leave a rating or a review. I'll even read out the review on the air. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word and get a playlist with every song I've ever used on the show, including this one. It's Keep an Open Mind by Captain. Next week, I'll be talking to author, diversity advocate, and creator of the Yes All Women hashtag Karuna Riazzi. Yes, for real this time. About the films of Studio Ghibli. Join me, won't you? I, I feel like I'm usually in the minority, and I've only been to Los Angeles once for about four days, and I did a ton of stuff, and I really enjoyed it. Uh-huh. Yet, I say, and, I, and whenever I say, oh, I really loved L.A., everyone kind of looks at me funny. You're not allowed to like L.A.? Come on. It's awful. <laughs> the whole point of it is to, is to give you something to complain about. It's the hate sink for the country. Indeed. <laughs> So uh, you were saying in the Skype, you've listened to all the episodes? Yes. Really? Yes. <laughs> wow. So um, it was, I, I discovered your show, I think it was about two weeks ago, maybe three. So yeah, I've been, I've been burning through them. I have a job where I, I actually get the chance to listen to a lot of podcasts. It's a dumb, boring day job, but uh, I have a lot of time to myself. So it's been very good to catch up on this. I, I discovered you through Xena Business, actually, where I thought you were thoroughly charming and I enjoyed the oh, idea you. I enjoyed the idea of your podcast a lot yeah I was very lucky to get both of them on the show and then I sort of in the aftermath of Ali's episode she was just like I was like oh yeah I'm really excited about about Dean the Warrior business you know because I, I really loved your turn on sailor business mm-hmm. and stuff and she was like hey we're looking for guests do you want to go and I'm like uh yes <laughs> yes I really would had you watched Xena before then? Yeah, I watched it a bunch when I was a kid cool and so I had not watched it since though because it's it's really not available streaming or anything. So that idea of, oh, maybe I'll check it out. The few times I had tried to check out like older stuff from that time mm-hmm. had been met with like horrible failures. Like just saying, the first season of Highlander, the TV series, is rough. Yeah. <laughs> it's real rough. Yeah. Despite all the fond memories I have of that show. Yeah. I've, I've been wanting to... I, I basically, I was caught up on Sailor Business, and I just needed more in my life, so I started listening to Xena strictly for that, and uh, Sailor Moon was a show that I actually hadn't watched. I discovered Sailor Business through a really weird back channel. I, I discovered them through the One Shot podcast when they were guests. Oh, um, right, because fr- they, they did the, the Sailor Moon one. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was so good, and I knew very little about Sailor Moon at the time, and that was my introduction to Sailor Moon, was <laughs> them playing that one RPG on One Shot. 
and hearing Chris and Jordan, and being like, okay, I gotta listen to this show. I gotta figure out what the deals with the Sailor Moon thing, because it sounds awesome. It was the kind of thing that, like, I caught the occasional episode of a kid, as a kid, you know, but I, like, never, I never watched it really, apart from, like, 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there, and being like, hmm, this is a girl show. I can't watch that. Well, except, <laughs> I don't know, it wasn't really quite that conscious. I don't think I, I put it into those worlds, but more like, oh, this is, this is, like, not on the menu for me. This is, like, not a thing I'm allowed to watch. Not like, yeah. not like as, as like I want to and I'm not allowed to, but why would I even want to? Like that kind of thing. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, it doesn't like cross into your, your targets. Yeah, it's like, it's not on the list of options of like, oh, what could I do today? Like, that's not, it's not like I see it, I'm like, oh, I can't pick that one. It's like not even there, you know? So. I got to see a couple of Sailor Moon episodes because one of my best friends in high school, my friend Miranda, and my little sister, we're both watching it. Like I, I had a random scattering of episodes. Sorry, that, that I'd seen. And when I'm like, oh, I like Chris Sims because of Ajax and other stuff, and maybe I'll give this Sailor Moon thing a try because I don't. I'd, I'd recently watched the first bit of Crystal, and I'm like, oh, yeah, this yeah. is fun. I kind of remember this. And now I have enough knowledge through literally every episode of Sailor Business that I listen to right. that I can talk about it with my friends who have been watching and love the show. It's like it's like the Cliff's Notes version. I can make jokes about the Black Moon Clan and their makeup. I can, you know, talk about the gal pals of Sailor <laughs> Uranus and... Uh, and Neptune. Oh, shit. Yeah. I don't have a on the name. Neptune. That's what I was going to yeah. say. I'm like Jupiter. No. <laughs> the, no so, yeah, I can, I can get by. I can make jokes about any of the plot or audio aspects of the show, but not the visual ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually just... I saw the Sailor Moon R movie when it was in theaters. I got to see oh, really? the, the new dub version of it, actually. And it was so good. It was just bananas and like it uh it just spoke to me like so deep like i can tell you it was just so much mm -hmm. fun just this like crazy fantasy action adventure with like the colors of like elisa frank illustration <laughs> mixed in with this like i don't know it's so it's it's like you know I, I have a big soft spot for like power rangers so it was like that but also this like mix in this kind of like unapologetically beautiful feminine thing that's like very different combined with like the action it was like just this this like every good thing turned up to 11 like all the good flavors in a bowl together and yet they all taste good and it doesn't taste like crap for some reason was the experience of watching that movie for me so anyway yeah i was gonna say it's one of those things where it's like you know sometimes big screen adaptation kind of film things can be amazing and sometimes they can be not so i'm very glad to hear that it lived up to your expectations yeah even with the the weird kind of flower stuff. Oh, I, I just wanted to get you a flower. It was great. That was the best. <laughs> the, the like, it, I don't think neither of them had seen the new dub, but like they turned up the subtext on that even more so than any of the previous versions of it. Where like the <laughs> fact that there was something going on between Mamoru and Fiore is like not even subtext at that at that point in the new dub. It's it's really great, and I was just <laughs> they even like added in some sort of ADR dialogue of you know there was somebody like oh I guess you know Mamoru's popular with the boys and the girls or something like that, and then there was some of the Sailor Scouts were talking in the background about like oh you know I have some friends who are like that, and they're kind of talking about like there was like this like random throwaway ADR dialogue like hey. Can it's okay to be gay like you know like that was basically <laughs> like you know oh i know some people who are like that oh yeah me too some of my friends oh it's totally fine to be that way blah 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 like this kind of like slightly tough very much shoehorned in dialogue that i was still good to have in there because it's like oh so they're just like making it more explicit like there may have been something going on with them and it's okay and little kid if you're watching this movie for the first time with this new dub if you are that way that is all right and you know making it way more explicit than the the older dub did which i think is really cool so 
Yeah, totally. Take your affirmations where you can. Indeed.